IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we talk about one of the biggest bands of the 21st century, Coldplay. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He was a 9.5, and now he's a 7.0. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? It's it's just like that Japan Droid song, you know. It's like I used to be turn on the bright lights, and now I'm I don't know El Pintor or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. 7.0 is not that bad. I mean, if we're talking, I think that's the oh. I think that's the highest score Coldplay's ever gotten at Pitchfork. So. Uh, Oh yeah, good good way to uh, integrate it into our topic this yeah. week. Yeah, so seven point is good. The the people the people on Twitter are right. It's like no, it's it's not a C plus. It's like a it's like a B plus. It's three and a half stars. Like look, I I want to be someone seven point for you know I, I want to be a seven point to somebody for you know eternity rather than like a nine point five that gets demoted. Well, okay, so. We should fill in for people who don't know what we're talking about. There, there was a oh come on, who doesn't know what we're talking about? Who's listening to IndieCast? <laughs> There's the the folks out there. Some of the folks out there they they don't live online. They have jo- they have jobs. They have live families. They might not be on top of every okay. you know controversy that comes up. That's why they listen to our show. <laughs> they're they're catching up by listening to the right. show. Pitchfork ran a feature this week. Uh, as part of their 25th anniversary, they've, they've been rolling out a bunch of big retrospective features. And the one that got the most attention is that they uh, revisited, I think, 19 reviews from 19, the past yes. or so. And they rescored them. So albums that uh, were lauded in the past, some of them got demoted. Whereas other albums that were slagged in the past, they were uh, reassessed and, and given higher scores. And it's... I think uh, I think we could say that the Interpol turn on the bright yeah. lights rescore was the most controversial because in <laughs> 2002 when that album came out it was given a 9.5 album of the year in and 2002 then as well. It was the album of the year in 2002 for Pitchfork, and in this feature, uh, it was decided that it actually deserves a 7.0. Um, and look, I just want to say at the top that I liked this feature. I I thought it was. Uh, a playful gesture on Pitchfork's part. I, you know, I, I felt like it was them being irreverent with their own history, and you know, I, I didn't take it all that seriously. Yeah. I, I mean, it's not like they actually went into the review and cracked the, you know, cracked the glass <laughs> and, and changed the score for all eternity. Um, so I, I just took it as kind of like a, like a laugh almost when I, when I saw it. Yeah, poking the bear maybe. A little bit, you know, trolling people a little bit, you know, which is, it's okay. To me, it was playful. Uh, But that Interpol rescore, that really upset the 35 to 42-year-old population (laughs) in indie rock world. Yeah, of which we are very much uh, a part of. And um, we're like the CNN of that constituency. So that's why we're covering this story immediately this not not is, uh, not just the breaking news. news but the analysis afterwards um yeah i look I'm, I'm like all for the reassessment of i guess totems of the past and i think that's kind of what the this whole uh endeavor is really about which is kind of giving itself some separation from its earlier years and like the kind of you know for lack of a better term like white guy indie rock that uh was was Really, 
what made Pitchfork what it was. Interpol being kind of emblematic of all that. And yeah, it is kind of a ridiculous album. I, I think, though, that like... I think it still deserves yeah, a nice no, I'm going to say that amazing. for the record. Like, don't, I think it's a yeah, great record. It, it's, it's fucking amazing. And you know what? Like, if 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 it was, say, Bon Iver, Bon Iver that got demoted, I probably wouldn't have as much of a problem with it. It's not the actual um, act of uh, demoting. It's just, like, what they chose. And you know what? I'm pretty happy that, say, Source Tags and Codes didn't get uh, that same oh, that's treatment. that's true. Or, I mean, I can think of a... Or, more importantly, I'm just glad that none of the stuff I wrote got... Like, I, I just gotta, like, give my sincerest thanks that people really had my back when it came to, uh, like, <laughs> Childish Gambino and Kid Cudi. <laughs> like, well, my, 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 uh, my good friend Rob Mitchum was targeted ooh. by this feature because he famously wrote a review of Sky Blue Sky by Wilco oh, where, where he, used, he used the term dad rock in that review. That, that invented dad rock, right? Well, that term already existed. It, it, it originates in the British oh. press uh, from the mid-90s, which you can read about this in my book, Twilight of the Gods, by I, the way. Yeah. I have a chapter on this. But at any rate, um, they raised that score from a 5.2 to an 8.5, which um, I'm personally happy with. I, like A core of my relationship with Rob is just arguing about that <laughs> because I, I, I love that record and he doesn't like that record. So yeah, he got targeted by that. He but he took it in yeah. stride. He had a good sense of humor about it. The source tags and codes. I I forgot about that because that obviously got a ten. Yep. Back in two thousand was that two thousand two? Two thousand two. Um, that seems like that would have been an easy yeah. target. I'm glad that they didn't <laughs> take that down either because I I I I would still give that if not a ten a high. Yeah. Nine. I mean I think that's an amazing. Record. Like you said before, you know some of our listeners have jobs. They have like things to do. They're not like I also have a job and I have things to do. But believe you me, if like source t- if you touch source tags and codes, I will make it the purpose of my day to just be online and tell you how angry I am about that. Um, look, I have to say like the, th- like the, the most weirdly upsetting thing for me was that they lowered the Foxygen score. Of all bands. Like, for- <laughs> I know it's like <laughs> that record came out. I think that was thirteen. 13 that or was de- that was definitely thirteen. We're the ambassadors of of the twenty first century. Yada yada yada. If you don't, if you can't remember title. that title, Steve, who can? <laughs> well, I I talked about that album on this show. I yeah, think, we did recently, and uh, was that an IndieCast Hall of Fame? <sighs> it was something. I don't know. That record holds up. I think it's a good record. Yeah. It did seem a little random to, to take a shot at that yeah. album, just because, <laughs> I mean, we talk about it on this show. I don't know how disgusted it is, even though Jonathan Rado uh, actually has a really Thriving. good career right now as an indie rock producer. I think he's like one of the better people working in indie rock production right yeah. now. Um, but, I, you know, I, I wanted to talk to you about this. You know, again, I liked this feature. I I thought it was fun and playful, and uh, it's something I don't think that the site itself took that seriously. It was just kind of like a fun thing to do. Um, But I do feel like at Pitchfork, among like the current staff, do you feel like there's like an ambivalence about their about the site's history? I don't want to say hostility Uh... towards the history, (laughs) but but like mixed feelings about what the early pitchfork was because I, I, I get that feeling sometimes when I, when I look at the site yeah. and in a way I find it refreshing because it is uh, like an anti-nostalgia uh, point of view that I think is positive because they always want to 
stay current and on top of what's happening in culture now. But in some respects, it, it does seem like a little self-defeating to me because that is the most iconic period of the site, you know? And, like, Pitchfork, I think, is great now. I think they do a lot of things well. But, like, they're not going to matter as much as Pitchfork did in the aughts, you know, that was, that was their like Rolling Stone in the late sixties and early seventies yeah. period. And it's not the fault of the site. It's just that social media comes in. There's just like a lot more voices. No one site has the kind of, I think, power that Pitchfork had in the indie world from say the Kid A review up through say like Arcade Fire winning the Grammy for album of the year. Like, is, can we call that the Pitchfork, uh, you know, dominant era. And then after that, they become kind of like another just good music. Yeah. I think that it, (laughs) of course, you know, for, for the IndieCast listener, I'm going to use like a convoluted sports metaphor, but I think that, you know, when I came of age with it, two thousands, it was more like college football, like, you know, where it's a, a lot of the sites were more territorial and, uh, had different styles. And of course nobody got paid either, but now it's more like, you know, the NFL where it's, uh, like 30 different variations on the same basic premise. And, uh, you know, you just kind of follow laundry uh, in the sense that you, it, it's, it's more about like what the, it's, it's more about what the brand represents, I guess. And, um, you know, rather than like the individuals uh, or, or you just follow the individuals as a fantasy football sort of thing. It's like, you know, you care more about like what an individual person has to say more than, like what the uh, publication itself, there's not as much of an editorial voice, so to speak. But I think what, you know, what this exercise, um, I guess it lacked for me is like, I I re-reviewed Fevers and Mirrors and I Get Wet, the latter of which famously got a 0.6 from Ryan Schreiber. Um, And, you know, I thought like I was really, you know, writing the wrongs of history and so forth. But like, there was never a doubt in my mind that the person who originally wrote those reviews, like they really thought they were that bad, you know? Um, it's very easy for me to like just look back at someone else who has a completely different view, completely different perspective and just say, nah, you were wrong about that. Here's what I thought all along. I really think what a interesting exercise would be to get 19 people to reassess reviews they wrote like to look back on uh, something that they wrote 10 years ago and say no this is actually like way better than I originally said or no I got kind of fooled back then and here's what I would do now yeah yeah I mean I I agree I I mean I made a comment about something related to that on Twitter the other week and I got in trouble because I, I referred to Something I wrote in college about Beck. Oh, I, I, yeah. I said that he was the best artist of the 90s. And I was like, that's one of the worst takes I've ever had. And there were a lot of people who, you know, clapped back at me and they said, no, Beck is one of the best artists of the 90s. And like, which I, I think that's totally wrong, <laughs> you know, even though I felt that when I was like 21 or whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's always that uh, temptation to feel that wherever we're at in the modern moment, we have now progressed to the correct opinion. Yeah. So that if how we feel about something now is correct and how we felt in the past is wrong, I don't know if that's necessarily true. Mm. You know, I, 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 I think it's worth questioning that a little bit and, 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 and having the humility to say that at some point where we're at right now is going to be the past and people are going to look back on us 
as being wrong, you know, 20 years from now. I mean, maybe some of these records that have been rescored would be rescored again back to their original score, you know, that they were given at the time of release, you know? I I think we just need to resist the temptation of feeling that, like, well, now we're right. Yeah. We're right 20 years later, and, and we were wrong, or this writer was wrong, you know, back then. Um, I just don't think that's necessarily true. I think what this does, and it's, I think it's similar to like Rolling Stone recently doing their 500 or however many best songs of all time sort of list, that it, I think for the most part, publications are almost inherently not, there is no real such thing as an editorial voice or a publication voice. It is just a collection of people, particularly now, who probably also write for four or five other sites and probably won't be there in two years. You know, that's no slight to any publication. It's just that's how things are. And that's kind of why I think of it more like the NFL where, you know, you're on the pet, like you're rooting for a guy on the Eagles. And then all of a sudden, like two years later, he's on the Giants or something like that, where there are just people out there trying to make a buck. And uh, I don't know if there's any sort of like allegiance to a greater idea. You know, we could do it like, uh, like I, I think the funniest out of all those for for that reason was the Grimes uh, re-review of uh, Miss Anthropocene, which like they gave a best new music last year. It made the year end list last year, and now like less than a year later, it's like no, maybe that wasn't that good at all. Um, you know, it, it's probably just the the result of you know, I don't know. Maybe the people who like that album are gone, and a new bunch of people are in now, and. You know, nothing's really changed except the individual tastes, you know, as opposed to like some diktat and, uh, you know, sent from down high about like, this is what we believe now. You know, two years from now, you'll believe something else. Yeah, I mean, and this goes back to my point about, you know, people at Pitchfork now maybe feeling ambivalent about the site's own history, which I think is an interesting dynamic. I mean, you mentioned Rolling Stone, you know, and for all the shots that you could take at Jan Winner, you know. He was a connective thread at that place for the better part of 50 years. So you knew his biases. You knew like, okay, we're, you know, if, if a Mick Jagger solo record's coming out, it's going to get five stars, mm-hmm. you know, it, to the point where you could make fun of it and caricature it. But it was a point of yeah. view, you know, it, it, it was something that you could, that you could count on. And, you know, I think of Rolling Stone. They'll still do interviews like with Roger Daltrey when he has yeah. a solo tour or something. <laughs> and, and you could say like, well, who cares about Roger Daltrey? But it, there is a connective thread to The Who yeah. being a formative act of Rolling Stone's early years. And you could say, well, it's almost like The Who's part of Rolling Stone's history. So they're going to keep telling that story as they mm-hmm. go forward. And um, and again, I, I don't know what the answer is. Because again, I, I like this sort of revisionist attitude of younger generations being irreverent about like what critics like 20 years ago i think that can be healthy but i also feel like if you're like a legacy publication which is which is what pitchfork is now um if you slag the artist that you were associated with early on aren't you also erasing your own history in a certain sense and you're but i think that's kind of the point (laughs) yeah but i I just wonder if that becomes self-defeating it's because it's also the moment in history that gives them the most cachet. Yeah, it's, it's you know. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer. Yeah, to that it's is. it's like that. That's kind of the paradox where that past is in a lot of ways its most valuable asset. And 
you know, perhaps in the future they can, you know, it it can be continued to be played upon. But I, I don't know, man. Maybe like twenty years from now, we're doing indie cast. You know, the, your Roger Daltrey thing is like, you know, Ice Age or something like that. <laughs> like twenty years from now, Ice Age. You know what? The, it's tw- it's twenty forty one, and I really think they're going to level up on their fifteenth album. I think this is the one for them. <laughs> Yep, still making fun of St. Vincent album cycles. Yeah, oh man. And uh, 2041, it'll be it'll be beautiful. Um, do we want to talk quick about the new Mitski single? Yeah, you, yeah, you want to uh, talk discourse, man? Like, uh, what are the what are the tr- like the eternal truth of Twitter is like anytime it feels like a bad Twitter day, just like hold on because something will replace that in like eight hours. And like, thank God Mitski came around to you know to to put a completely different sort of insane discourse on the map you know well okay so the the song is called working for the night i feel like again for the folks at home that have not kept up with uh everything this week i think it's a pretty good yeah. song i liked it kind of like a kate bush vibe mm-hmm. to it a little bit uh which is the direction that mitski seems to be slowly moving toward after starting out in more of like an emo pop punk type realm yeah. on her earlier records but yeah mitski uh there's something about her uh, where she has that. She's not as popular as Lana Del Rey, but she seems to attract the same type of like, intensity <laughs> of follower, like people who are like Mitski, run me over with a double yeah. type of type of fans. Um, and it seemed like for a while that it had freaked her out to the point where it was like, "Oh, is Mitski gonna ever make another record?" Because just the intensity around her. Again, she's not a huge star, but like in this small pond of indie rock, uh, you know, she is this huge force, a big cult of personality. I think Lana Del Rey does have like kind of a healthy distance from uh, her on, like her on record musical persona to, you know, to like, I think that that the intensity that people relate to that person isn't quite as strong because I think everyone can kind of, understand that that's a character whereas with Mitski um and I think this is something that's come up like with an alarming frequency where the word parasocial gets thrown around where no matter like what is happening on record or like Mitski has like said outright like please don't use this song as emblematic of an entire group of people whether it's you know Asians or like women or whatever but like people end up doing it anyway and yeah, and there was and there was that thing with Mac DeMarco. Oh yeah, had uh, be oh the cowboy as album title. What a two thousand! I people... really wish IndieCast was around for that. <laughs> that would have been amazing. That oh. is one of the like big regrets that we weren't around at that point. Um, but y- y- people just felt compelled to like White Knight on Mitski's behalf that like Mac DeMarco had created this. You know, he had committed this terrible sin, yeah. you know, against Mitski, and people had to defend Mitski. But then it also becomes. Uh, it's so intense that it becomes a burden Mm. for the person you're defending. Um, And uh, yeah, yeah, people put so much, they project so much onto her that, that she doesn't seem to be asking. No, as a matter of fact, she like actively uh, tries to say like, please don't do that. And I, I, this is true with like any sort of stand culture. I mean, like you even saw that, like, uh, uh, like a month or so ago with the Foxing Review, like the band had to be like, yo, please don't defend us in the way that you feel emotionally driven to defend us. And um, I think that's more present nowadays with, you know, 
the the stars of indie rock largely being um you know solo artists you know like your phoebe bridgers or snail mail or you know japanese breakfast like or julian baker i mean i think you mentioned in your interview with julian baker that um you know she kind of uh she she felt like this weird sort of burden to be the the person her fans think her to be at all times yeah, I, it's funny with social media because I feel like there's some degree of irony when people are using this very bombastic language mm-hmm. to describe their love of a certain musician. Again, like I, I made a joke about this a little bit earlier, but you know, people when people are like, "Yeah, I, I, I want Mitski to cut me in half with a chainsaw," yeah. you know, I want, I want to be run over uh, by a tow truck driven by Mitski. There's a little bit of irony to it, but because it's social media and it can strip context out so easily it it kind of becomes true like in the bombast builds on bombast and mania feeds mania and it just becomes this crazy you know, like rat king situation all these like tails tied together and it becomes a, a like a monster of uh emotion existing on these sites so anyway what, what we um, just need to do is go back to the good old days of anonymous bands with like five people in them so we can just kind of spread exactly we can kind of just spread our like insanity to more than one person it, it's too much for one person to bear that's another good reference to our topic today coldplay because <laughs> i feel like they're they're a band yeah. I, I like I, I I wish we had like live call in so we can like ask the other people like ask our listeners if they can name another person in Coldplay besides Chris Martin. Yeah, well, I can say well, there's Guy Barry, Will Champion, because that's a great fucking name. And is it Johnny Buckley? Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> but I was just thinking, like, 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 you know, because you know, spoiler alert, we're both we both like Coldplay. We've listened to them since their first record. But like, if Guy Berryman walked up to you with a name tag that said, "My name is Guy yeah. Berryman," like, would you recognize him? I, I don't it's think. Like, I dude, would. I love your work in Snow Patrol. I mean, <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're you're a middle aged British guy with a nice haircut, so I assume that you're in either Coldplay or Muse or uh, you know Travis. I don't know exactly though. I don't. I wouldn't be able to figure it out. I could narrow it down mm. enough, but I, I don't think I could identify him. Um, all right, it's now time for our mailbag segment, and uh, thank you all again for writing in. Uh, if you want to hit us up, we're at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at IndieCast1. Um, also going to make a request, if if you like our show, could you give us a review, please, on, on wherever you get your iPads? iPads? <laughs> or iPads, your podcasts, uh, or iPads. Yeah, and one. if you gave us like three or four stars like back in the day, now's the time to re-review, you know, in the spirit of the season. Yes, that's true. Um, so this question comes from Ben in Cincinnati, not John from Cincinnati, nope. unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to read this yeah, one? Yeah, let's read this one. Um, I, lo- I love the fact that you're allowing me to read them these days, man. This is... Well, you know, I'm trying to be a good yeah, partner. Yeah, this is like the, the Robbie Goo Goo Dolls, the one song in the Goo Goo Dolls album where the bassist <laughs> sings. Um, okay, so this is one. So Ben from Cincinnati says, I was scrolling through Pitchfork's most most important artists of the past 25 years list, an idea conspicuously close to the IndieCast Hall of Fame. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for recognizing that. And I couldn't help but notice they ordered artists alphabetically by first name, then last name. As someone who has an off-on relationship to CD collecting, I was caught off guard. And as someone who came to indie music through Pitchfork reviews of the last decade, I found myself angrier at this than the Foxing score. 
You know that. <laughs> yes. Uh, I understand iTunes, Apple Music has always ordered it in this way, but I have yet to come across a record store that has done this. This is a trend in poptimism, and I'm simply naive. Record stores, <laughs> in my experience, always order alphabetically by last name, then first. So does that mean is Kendrick Lamar under KRL? Does, Suf- does Sufjan Stevens go before or after the strokes? Fiona Apple. Now that involves a whole other list of questions, but I hope you get my conundrums. Again, thanks for the pod, and glad to see Los Campesinos make the list. This is a super in the weeds question about alphabetizing, and I think I-, I think it's funny that despite the foxing uh, shout out, I think this is more to you because you are a cassette CD guy, and you still That's have to true. consider this. I'll, yeah, you know, and I didn't notice that on uh, the Pitchfork list. Which, by the way, uh, going back to what we were talking about before with uh, Pitchfork reconsidering their history. Uh, Think of some of the people that aren't on that list. Uh, Kurt Vile, Titus Andronicus, mm. Washed Out. I made a joke about how Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah should be on that they list. They absolutely should. So should Black Kids and Jet. <laughs> I mean, in terms of, like, because that list was about Pitchfork's history. Yeah. And, uh, you know, these are artists that, you, you know, you, I don't know how the site feels about them now, but certainly important to their history, more so than say Usher, for instance, who I think is on the list. And yeah. no shots at shot at Usher. Usher's made records I enjoy, but Usher is not does not have any meaningful relationship with Pitchfork yeah. uh, as a site. I mean I guess they've covered his records, but they have. But is anyone who like loves Usher, do they think in terms of like the Pitchfork reviews maybe of his his records? Maybe they do. I uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's like a, I, there's an alternate universe indie cast that like will just talk about Usher even when he's not on an album cycle. That just seems like an example, though, again, of of people at the site now looking at the history and being like, well, yeah, this might have been important to the history, but it's unimportant to us now, so we're mm. going to cut this out. Anyway, that point aside, mm. um, I'm with the with the uh, listener here, uh, with, with, with Ben in Cincinnati, and this is maybe a generational thing that I hadn't really noticed, that alphabetizing by the last name... Mm-hmm is a record store conceit. It's something I was raised with. I feel like that also exists in libraries and, you know, video stores and bookstores or wherever. It's usually by the last name of the author, not the first name. But I guess streaming platforms have rejiggered this and and now we're just following suit on music websites? Uh, Maybe. I mean, God, like... I I I do miss the alphabetizing and like you know fretting over, um, you know like well wait like usually how I would do it is that if it's their real name last name first so Kendrick Lamar would be under L, Lil Wayne is not quite a real name so it's under L as well, and also right. if like you have an assumed name like Bon Iver that's under B even though that sounds like a dude's name and it's one dude. But, yeah, yeah. Little Wayne is basically it's like a band name. Yes. you know, so like you wouldn't alphabetize the Strokes with the, or um, would you? <laughs> or would you? Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, is that what sites? No, do? Like, I, do they... I, I would not. And then the the you just have to throw that out of your collection <laughs> entirely because it's just like a four oh four error. Yeah, I don't know. I but look, Ben, I have to be honest. I didn't notice this and. I, I don't have a strong opinion on it, but if you're going to ask me my opinion, I'm I'm with you. I'm with the old school mm-hmm. record store way of alphabetizing it. But you know, maybe this is another way of life that is now 
fading away. And now we're going to have a new way of doing things and we're all going to have to adjust. I don't know. But, but now nowadays, when, like given the fact that I listen to like all of my music on like a phone uh, and mostly at the gym, like I, I need to like be able to find stuff as quickly as possible. So maybe this current way of doing things, it's like, okay, I want to listen to Boney Bear. It's like, I got to find, I'm just going to go straight to B. It like reduces the search by like 0.0002 seconds, which, you know, if like you're running or you're in your car, it means everything. So um, maybe this is, maybe this is the way to go. It's like, it read my mind and it's trying to keep me safe rather than like, I can't like, you know, thumb through or dig through the crates, uh, uh, you know, on my iPhone the same way I could, like, back when I had that CD logic binder. Yeah, so I think what we're saying is we trust our tech overlords. Yes. Don't question them. Never. Uh, just go along with whatever they do because they have our best interests at heart. That's, so. what, that's, what, that's what's gotten IndieCast <laughs> where it is. Uh, all right, well, let's get to the meat of our episode. Yes. We're going to be talking about a little band called Coldplay. And we're talking about them because they have a new album out next week. It's called Music of the Spheres. Uh, it's just a great title. I love saying that out loud. Music of the Spheres. Uh, neither one of us have heard this record, so we're not going to be reviewing the album. We're going to be doing a deep dive into Coldplay's career. Uh, but uh, just a little bit uh, of background on Music of the Spheres. It's produced by Max Martin, who uh, is associated with uh, some of the biggest pop songs of the last 25 years. He he uh, wrote, uh, he co-wrote Since You've Been Gone for Kelly Clarkson, mm-hmm. I Want It That Way with the Backstreet Boys. Just tons of... Boy uh, band, like Boy classic. band, teen pop, just classics. Um, is Coldplay the first act to work with Max Martin and Brian Eno in their like career? Back, I, I don't know. Didn't the Backstreet Boys try to make like an ambient album back in like 2000 <laughs> that was shelved? I mean... The Berlin trilogy yeah. by uh, the Backstreet Boys. Yeah, no, I forgot that, about that. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna like just like completely like make this false Backstreet Boys ambient album and say like, oh, you know the the label Jive they they shelved it for being way too daring and have this be like a complete like critical hit. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. That was that's where uh, the Backstreet Boys they they looked at the new century and they said, you know, we made an album called Millennium, but now we're gonna make a record of that captures how the millennium feels. Yes. Uh, so we're gonna get Brian. <laughs> we're gonna go to. We're gonna go to Berlin. Work at Hansa Studios. Yeah. Uh, bang out a masterpiece. Um, there, the previous Coldplay record. Yes. Was Everyday Life that came out in 2019. It's a double record. It was nominated for Album of the Year at the Grammys. I don't remember this record at all. Do you remember? Can you recall like a single note of that record? Uh, vaguely, I think there was like one song, uh, and I'm going to like really go out on a limb here, but it was about like this person in like war, the war torn middle East, wishing they can go out and drink with their friends or something like that. Um, I think that was what it was about, but either way, it's like, I I just had this sense of anxiety as you were talking about like whole place 2019. I'm like, God damn it. I don't remember what this album is called. Like (laughs) I I had to Google it. I had to Google it. I don't remember that record, but you know, it definitely exists. Much, it definitely exists, and you know, it, it, I can't remember if we talked about this on a previous episode or not because we were, I was doing some sort of research that required me looking at Coldplay streaming numbers, and it really is shocking, like how popular this band still is in 2021, and how, like, if you look at the numbers, it's hard for me to think of a rock band 
and I am calling Coldplay a rock yeah, band. Yeah, they're a rock band. I they're a rock band that even approaches their popularity. I mean, they have two songs that have streamed over a billion times mm-hmm. on Spotify. Uh, something more than this, which I guess that's technically a, is that technically a Chris Martin and Chainsmokers yeah. collab? Is that is, yeah? Is how that how would we file song? this if we had like the CD single? Would it be like under Martin or Coldplay or Chainsmokers? Like. <laughs> Can you imagine buying the CD single of uh, something more than this? Like, I, 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 on, I think that song is very much like this. a CD single type beat. You know, it's like that. That just seems like I. I don't recall buying too many CD singles back in the day, but that would be the one. Like, there is something so very CD and, single about that, and having the five remixes and the mono version, and that's true. That's true. Uh, well, that has streamed over 1.6 billion times. Uh, the Scientist, uh, from A Rush of Blood to the Head, 1.1 billion. Uh, and then there's a bunch of songs that are close to a billion. Like Viva La Vida has 945 million streams. Fix You is at 859. Him for the Weekend, which is a song, this is like the era, that comes from the era of Coldplay where I start to check out with them. That has 766 million streams. I mean, this is like... Drake numbers. You know, like The Weekend. Yeah, Drake numbers. I mean, just unbelievable. Um, but looking at the arc of their career, like, what do you think their legacy is? Because again, I, I, I said this earlier, you and I both like Coldplay. I would say aughts era. Um, I think I have a Coldplay playlist that I've made. I think that they are, um, like a really good pop rock band. And I think they've got like five records or so that I think are actually like quite good. Do they pass that five album test? I think they do. Okay. Yeah, you're. I think you're right. Because if we start with Parachutes and take that towards Milo, um, yeah, I think they, I mean, yeah, I'd say I'd say they're there. But What's well, funny, it. because X and Y would be the album that a lot of people would say is the weak spot, and All that's right. your favorite Coldplay record. <laughs> it is my, it, I, I mean, this is like, in in light of like our talking about like the difference between like our Twitter lives and our real lives, like defending X and Y is one of my favorite Twitter bits, but it's also not at all a bit. Um, I think that the, you know, the first half of that album, especially the run going from fix you to uh, speed of sound that to me is like Coldplay, like reaching its Zenith as far as like being an arena rock band. I don't even think Coldplay loves that record. I think that they, kind of had to um, downplay it, uh, you know, in light of their reinvention on Viva La Vida. But, I mean, when I think about, like, what I actually listen to Coldplay for, which is these big, vague, uh, romantic arena rock... Not arena rock, because that... Coldplay's not... They're a rock band that plays arenas, but they, they... I always think of them as that band from 2000 who basically started out as a Travis ripoff band. And I'm like using that term literally. I, I, <laughs> I interviewed Travis in 2019. What a statement. I love that. Well, I love, I love Travis feeling like they were ripped off. By well, the, no, I, I, I think the IndyCast people need to know this story. So I wrote about this at the ringer. I interviewed Travis for the 20th anniversary of the man who, and Fran Healy would talk about how they would tour through England and he would always see Chris Martin side stage, like studying them, like going single white female on what Travis was doing. And my favorite story from that whole piece is Fran Healy saying that like, 
this is 2000. They're like the biggest band in Britain. And they see a cover of Q magazine. And Fran's like, I don't remember doing that cover story. But like, you know, they're big enough to have a cover, uh, you know, without doing an interview. And then he goes and approaches like, oh, fuck, that's Coldplay. Right. Like, and, and it's as, as crazy as this sounds like 20 years later. I mean, I, I think you're totally right. That they were <laughs> a band that... At the beginning, it seemed like they were writing the coattails of Travis when they put out The Man Who, yeah, uh, which came out in 99. Mm-hmm. Parachutes comes out in 2000. I mean, Travis's idea was basically to take the ballads from The Benz yes. and the ballads from What's the Story, Morning Glory, mm-hmm. and fuse them together uh, in this like beautiful mid-tempo stew of mm-hmm. you know epic balladry. And Coldplay took that idea, and I, I just think that they did it better. Than Travis did, and that's why they usurped them uh, eventually, or, or they just were able to do it over a longer period of time. Well, they just I wanted remember, it more. I, I think remember that... when Parachutes came out; that was one of my favorite albums of of two thousand. I, I I thought that was a great record. Don't panic. Obviously, Yellow is on that record. Uh, uh, Shiver, Shiver, yes. Um, uh, Trouble. Uh, it was. It's a really nice record, but then a rush of blood to the head Ooh, yeah. comes out in two thousand three or two thousand two, two thousand two, and that and that really just blows them up. And then that's where they become like the world conquering rock band. Yeah, I listened to Parachutes this morning, and it's almost like hilarious how obviously they're ripping off certain Radiohead songs. Um, it, like Lightspeed, that is definitely uh, home subterranean homesick alien. Trouble is lucky. Uh, Oh, and, Shiver is very like yeah, that's like you Jeff know, Buckley. Ben's air, yeah, the, like it's them doing the Radiohead doing Jeff Buckley exactly. You know, so it's like three degrees removed. Yeah, but with Rush of the Blood to the Head, I mean that one right there is where it bears out that they were kind of a version of Travis or even Radiohead that wa- just they just wanted it more. Um, and so that album just takes everything about parachutes and make like I I have to, I I have to look back on that era and wonder like how I allowed myself to like Coldplay because when I hear it now it's like these I kind of knew the lyrics were embarrassing I kind of knew that the sound was super derivative and that it wasn't actually saying anything but god man when I was like 22 years old and just like working a shitty job and like just going home and drinking and watching MTV2 you watch like the video for In My Place and that song just sounds really fucking profound (laughs) Yeah, and I, there was something about Coldplay that it's it was almost like they were responding to the market because, you know, Radiohead, they they make these two just beautiful, perfect guitar rock records in the late 90s, yeah. and then they decide to ditch that sound uh, on Kid A in the year 2000. And then, look, here comes Coldplay the same year saying, hey, you like that stuff, that Radiohead? <laughs> you know, they don't do that anymore? Like, we're going to do it now. And so we're like we're we're servicing the market here. Uh, you know, there's there's a gap. It's almost like when the Beatles stopped being lovable mop tops in the '60s and they went psychedelic. So then the Monkees came along and they're like, okay, we're the we're gonna do what they used to do because we know people still like it. I think to me that's what Coldplay was, mm-hmm. and that's how I appreciate them in the same way I appreciate the Monkees. Like the Monkees <laughs> just have great pop songs that you don't get tired of hearing and there's not maybe the political element or the cultural, you know, socio-political, cultural 
impact that a band like the Beatles has, but it's just good pop music, and you you can enjoy it on a simple level. It, it, to me, that's what Coldplay's always been. But how do they go from that to being the biggest band of the 21st? Like, at what point do they become not just that, uh, like you know, the the band that serves the need that Radiohead left off, or even a band like along the lines of like say the Killers or Muse, but like the biggest band of the 21st century because I, you know the trajectory they've had is not straight it's not like they've gotten bigger and bigger with every album uh and here they i mean did the chain smokers era kind of save them in a way well you know i i feel that with coldplay i, I i've made this comparison in the past that i in a way i, I compared like those big coldplay hits of the aughts to like the journey power ballads of the eighties, like don't stop believing and faithfully and uh, all these songs that are like, you know, they live forever in karaoke bars and they also do extremely well in streaming platforms. And it's the kind of music that people who don't read music criticism and aren't online all the time. Like it's the kind of music that I think a lot of people like that, like, like where you don't have, you know, people online constantly telling you that this is lame. So you, it would never even occur to you, to not enjoy it because again i think there's something about coldplay where you hear a song and it just hits your emotional buttons it does immediately and you don't have to think about it uh <laughs> and there's something kind of refreshing about that i think for a lot of people uh you can like it instantly it's not difficult um and it's good songs it, it, it's produced well and it sounds you know, it, it moves people like a song like "Fix You." I think. Oh God! That, don't even get me started. <laughs> that that legitimately, I'm you know, that's oh, an emotional song. It even is. Though it's you. It's you so can, vague, and yet it's so, <laughs> so. And it's so, right. like it, I. I just think about the. I, I just think about hearing it. There was a. I think in 2005, some sort of like, um, some sort of like Live Aid sequel or something like that, and I think they played it there, and that's just like Coldplay just wants to do that they want to be like bono without the politics or radiohead without the art and the wild thing is that's what people a lot of people really want myself included yeah i mean i think that's why they go over so well not just in arenas but in stadiums i mean i think they play stadiums now yeah um when you're in a stadium big broad gestures gotta hit the cheap uh, seats they, they pay off we're like nuance and specificity it just gets lost in that kind of room and and i think you're right i think coldplay always wanted to be that kind of band that's going to be playing stadiums um and that's why they work i mean they are a punching bag though now i guess uh, still i mean with, with critics even in the era where it seems like every popular artist gets the benefit of the doubt from critics where, or at least the idea that like, we're going to try to understand why this is popular and not just dismiss it out of hat. Coldplay feels like an exception to that. Like they don't really get that kind of consideration a lot of times from, from critics. And I wonder if it does ultimately fall back on the idea that this is a band that doesn't have a narrative or really, they don't really stand for anything. No, I don't uh, think they don't. <laughs> you can't, you can't like a rush of blood to the head, which again, I think is a really good record. I enjoy listening to it, but I would never say like, well, this represents the culture of the early aughts. <laughs> maybe you know, it does. You... Maybe it does. Like, you know, when you think about like um, the way people, 
describe the 2000s as being like a less politically engaged time or I, right. I, I, they were just like kind of a salve, you know? Like in a sort of accidental way. It, yeah. it becomes rep- – yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that. But, you know, I think of someone like Harry Styles, for instance, who I okay. think is doing something – I think he's playing a similar musical game huh. to Coldplay in that he's making pop music with a rock edge and playing it in arenas like these big, you know, arms hoisting type, <laughs> you know, songs. Uh, that's what he's doing. I think – he does it not nearly as well as Coldplay. Like I don't think he has a song that can approach Yellow or Clocks or The Scientist. But he is a a, a person who will, like wear dresses on stage and he'll wear like a feather boa. And yeah. music writers can look at that and go, "Oh, he's challenging gender norms," and yeah. that somehow makes a song like Watermelon's Sugar seem more profound. <laughs> Whereas, like if Chris Martin wore a dress on stage, I think people would immediately look at that and say, "Oh, he's just." trend hopping yeah. you know they would immediately see through it because there is a sort of shallowness to him as a personality or you know no one's looking to him for cultural commentary yeah or like maddie healy in the 1975 <laughs> not to start an argument here but like i mean i think they're working in a similar vein to coldplay you could say like in a broad sense mm. just in terms of just being like a big time pop rock band uh, that you know, th- they have some rock songs, they have some pop songs, they play big venues. Uh, but Maddie Healy, people look at him as, well, he's a profound voice in talking about online culture. And if you listen to these records, you can understand where we're at right now as a society. No one's doing that with Coldplay. You know, they have n- they have none of that sort of pretentious baggage to their music, for better or worse. Yeah, and I think that's kind of intentional. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, what. The way I think about like Chris Martin is uh, there, there's a great line from The Simpsons where like Bart like calls Millhouse a nerd or something like that. And Millhouse is like, I'm not a nerd, Bart. Nerds are smart. And you know, that's kind of how I think about like Chris Martin where he doesn't even he doesn't really even have like the juice to be considered this kind of um, anti cool, cool or some like an outcast. Like he just seems like a normal ass dude. Um, who just wanted to be in a very popular band, and you know, he somehow managed it, and yet somehow also he got he like did songs with Jay Z and uh, Kanye West. Like, how do you, how did that happen? Well, and also Frank Ocean. Uh, oh yeah, right, uh, right. On his first record, Nostalgia Ultra, he sampled yeah. Strawberry Swing. No, he covered he covered Strawberry that, Swing. Outright. Yeah, well, did he? I mean, did he do the same? Did he like? Have different lyrics over the music, or did he just? Straight nah, up I think do it was pretty much a straight up cover. Um, yeah, that's the thing. And I mean, Adam Levine also has that weird type of yeah. uh, cred too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the people that are the most hostile to Coldplay are like also the people most like Chris Martin, I think, you know, <laughs> like well-to-do white people who uh-huh. are like very trend conscious and are online. They are probably the most likely to not like Coldplay. Yeah. Um, whereas I think, again, I think a lot of other kinds of people, people who don't follow uh who aren't on social media maybe or who aren't following the music press i think they take a lot of coldplay songs at face value and just Mm -hmm. being like yellow is a pretty song yeah the scientist is a beautiful ballad you know Mm -hmm. why wouldn't i like this there's nothing about the aesthetics of those songs that turns people off Mm -hmm. uh which is probably what a lot of people don't like about coldplay that there is no edge to them there's no there's nothing subversive about them um, but 
yeah, I think a lot of people don't need that in their music. They just want really well-written, pretty songs that they can sing, you know, along with with like 50,000 other people in a stadium. One feels fits all, man. What, like, what, what, how exci- by the way, like, I think we need to like just point, like, how excited are you for the new record? Um, You know, I <laughs> like that single, Higher Power. Okay. I thought that single was pretty good. Is that the um, one that rips off the weekend? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It that's sounds like one. Blinding Lights. Got it. A bit, which, again, such a mercenary band. I mean, they uh, Chris Martin isn't afraid to do something completely obvious, like, hey, let's do a song with BTS, you know, if he <laughs> thinks it's going to get them a hit. You know, like, there's nothing that you could say to Chris Martin where he'd go, ah, no, that's a little embarrassing. I don't know if... Uh, <laughs> You know, that works, or I want to do something a little bit more subtle than that, or not as craven. You know, like there's 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 no bone in his body that you know would prevent him from doing something that he thought would be popular. Do you think that there's one in Guy Berryman or Will Champion like the, that? Their that their their avant garde leanings are being stifled. Well, and don't forget Johnny Bucklin. You oh, know, how can you forget I, Johnny Bucklin? Get him in there. His, I mean, those guys. That they, instrument they, he plays so well, whatever. No, I know he's the fucking guitarist. Come on. I'm not gonna... is, is Champion the drummer? Champion's the drummer. I think he won some, like, there was some study about the most accurate drummers or, like, the most, like, on point, And, like, I think he won it. Like, there was, like, a scientific what? study about, like, the most. Uh, you know, the most, like, um, technically proficient drummer as far as, like, being on beat. It's champion. Champion was a champion. Yes, I might just be making this shit up completely, but it's a cool thing to say. So champion is like the new Neil Pert here, basically. Uh, I guess <laughs> that's amazing. Yes. All right, we've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so um, if you if you're if you are one of those people who don't have a job and don't have an outside life and just follow me on Twitter, you know what's going to be in this spot for me. It's the new "The World Is a Beautiful Place" and I am no longer afraid to die. Record called "Illusory Walls." It's their first album in four years, which is a huge gap of uh, silence from them. After always foreign, they reconstituted the band, just took some time off, and. Um, this is really up there for one of my favorite records of the year. I was a little concerned about how they would uh, soldier on after losing some really important members like uh, Dylan, who does uh, Spirit Night and is an incredible tweeter. Uh, Tyler, who's on Thank You, Thank You, another great artist. But they've they focused on the lyrics, the metal, and uh, just the prog and have become this, I don't know, this, 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 odd sort of hybrid of um you know guitar center heroics but also uh west virginia poetry and they've put together a record that just is uh, it's about the usual things which is triumphing over you know a crushing workload and and politics but the thing that is most notable about this record is that there's a 15 minute song at the end of the record called infinite josh which is incredible and then there's another 20 minute song immediately after that called Fewer Afraid, which is almost even better. Like, they've attached a 35-minute album of the year candidate to a 40-minute album of the year candidate. And I've just never seen that really in indie rock before. You do a 15-minute song and a 20-minute song. But, of course, I don't listen to The Dead like 
uh, Steve does. So maybe he's got more of a reference. See, point they're to that. Su- they're sucking you into the jam world accidentally here. Yes. Because I w- you know I like this record too. I have to say I was surprised by how much it is just a straightforward prog record mm-hmm. in a lot of places where it's like, man, this isn't that dissimilar to me to like Dream Theater or Tool in nope. places. Like, like it's not like a. It's not like a punk version of that. It's like a straightforward version of yeah. that. Uh, so this is an album uh, that, like, if you're not in the emo world, usually, I think, or if you come more f- from, like, a metal or progressive point of view, uh, this album, I think, could have, like, some crossover appeal into those worlds as well. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, it's a, it, it's a really cool record. And I'm always a fan of long songs. Yeah. So I love that there's two tracks that are 35 minutes long. Um, I'm also going to go with a very me pick in this slot. I'm, I'm, I want to talk about the 27-year-old English singer-songwriter Sam Fender. What a name. Uh, I know. Is that I, I, I haven't dug deep into this. I don't know if that's his real name or <laughs> if it's like a Johnny guitar situation. You know, like, I'm just going to have like a, a, a guitar-sounding last name. No, re- uh, real, real name, no gimmicks. Samuel Thomas Fender. There you go. He was born to be a rock star. Yeah. Uh, he actually is a rock star in England. He's, yes. uh, I, I saw the other day that he's about to do a tour. He's playing at Wembley Arena in England. So that, that speaks to how popular he's been over there. I believe that his debut album, which came out in 2019, called Hypersonic Missiles, was a number one record over there. Over here, though, he's still a cult artist. But I have to say that if you are on... My side of the IndieCast divide in terms of like your aesthetic preferences, that Sam Fender is basically an amalgam of like a lot of things that I have liked in the past. There's a Bruce Springsteen element to what he does. He's been compared to Bruce. Uh, that was a big narrative on hypersonic missiles, but it is more of like a war on drugs type take on Bruce Springsteen. Um, I also hear elements of like the Gaslight Anthem and the yeah. Killers and what he does. Basically, this is like widescreen you know, very catchy anthems with very <laughs> earnest lyrics, sometimes cringy lyrics. There was a song on his first record called White Privilege, Ooh. which is uh, self-explanatory <laughs> as as far as like why that would be cringy. Uh, but his new album is called 17 Going Under. It comes out today. Um, and I think it's an improvement on the first record, which I, which I did like. Uh, but similar to our Coldplay uh, uh, conversation, Sam Fender just writes really nice, melodic, beautiful, uplifting songs that hit your emotional mm. buttons. Even when, if you step back, you could pick it apart for intellectual reasons. I, I don't delve too deeply into the lyrics on his albums. I, I think they work better as broad statements. Um, but again, if you like any of the artists I just mentioned, and you're looking for just uplifting, powerful, nice Heartlandy type sounding rock. Mm-hmm. This is an album that I think you're really going to go for. Yeah, so it's called Seventeen Going Under by Sam Fender. It's out today. And if you actually like Google image search him, he sort of looks like Owen Wilson trying to be Bruce Springsteen. So I'm sure that doesn't hurt. But yeah, I think he's like kind of the like he's kind of the modern Coldplay in that he's everything you say he is, but he also has this sense of like, oh, rock needs to be meaningful now. But he does so in a very blank way, which. I find, in a weird way, I find to be very appealing. Yeah, I mean, again, like White Privilege is definitely a song I skip on the yeah, first record. Yeah, I, I don't really think I need to know Sam Fender's uh, 
views on white privilege. I can yeah. probably figure it out. Yeah, it's just uh, let's just say he's against it. All yes. right, uh, he he's not in favor of Bold. white privilege. <laughs> um, but again, you know, sometimes. I just want musical comfort food, and that's what this album is for me. It's not challenging in the least. It's not going to redefine how I look at music. But in terms of just having really, again, melodic songs that hit me, and that hit me in the gut, it's sort of like a Pavlovian way, not an intellectual way, uh, I think this record really works. So uh, both of those records, I think definitely check them out after listening to this episode. I think you'll you'll enjoy them both. that is it for this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. 